Sometime in the late hours of February 1st, 1959, nine Russian college students died tragically while on a winter ski hike in the northern Ural Mountains of the Soviet Union. When their bodies were finally found, a strange crime scene unfolded. The hikers had cut their way out of their tent and then carefully walked down the mountain to a group of trees below where they made a small fire. They didn't even bother putting on their shoes. And then some sort of violence broke out that left one hiker with a fractured skull, another with a crushed ribcage, another with internal head injuries. Other hikers had hands bruised from fighting. They were burned in various places. They died in various states of undress. Some tried to make it back to the tent and froze to death along the way. Others huddled in the woods below and froze there. What the fuck happened that night? People have been trying to find out for almost 60 years. I tell the story of the ill-fated hike and present the most plausible options and some not so plausible, but at least interesting options in this Russian mystery edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, motherfuckers. Welcome, Time Suckers. Welcome to a brand spanking new shiny suck. That was an aggressive way to start the show and it felt right. Wet your lips. Let it slide in. Wait, what? Forget about it. I'm Dan Cummins, the suck master, the suck master general, the suck master most high, suck lord Maximus Superbuskakis, and honorable Bojangles servant Dan Sucks for the third, and whatever else the cult of the curious has come up with and been calling me this week. Hail Nimrod. Big thanks again for the iTunes reviews this past week. Right around 1,800 iTunes reviews now, which means more bonus episodes. iTunes reviewer Alex, and I'm guessing this is a made-up last name because there's very few vowels. And by few, I mean none. It's Alex WG VG HS N. Please tell me that's not a real name. Wrote, hands down, one of the best choices I made this year was to start listening to this podcast. I'm always learning something new, and I laugh at the same time. Keep on sucking. Yes, Alex, that is the point. Learning while laughing, I love it. And again, the reason uh, for the iTunes reviews, it's not an Apple bias. If anything, Apple kind of pisses me off lately. But uh, it just happens to be the place where most people listen to podcasts and where most people find new podcasts, like 80 to 90% of people. So your reviews there spread the suck further than they do at any other place. Not that I don't love them on Stitcher or any other place. So just not like, don't, don't hold off. Don't be like, you know what? I was going to give a review here that was nice, but then I, he didn't say to do it in this place, so fuck it. No, it helps everywhere, but it helps the most there. For you Android users, by the way, sorry about the Google Play glitch this past Monday. I have no idea why the Time Suck RSS feed reverted to an old feed no longer in use. Uh, the second you guys let me know, I emailed Google, which was uh, all I could do, and they corrected it by the following morning, so hopefully that doesn't happen again. Uh, soon, very soon. Like, less than a month soon, an initial version of the TimeSuck app is going to be out for both Android and iOS users. And then Google Play can go fuck itself because we're going to have our very own player. And then when that messes up, I, I know the people to yell at because they're working for me right now. And they're fantastic. Holy, I don't think I would have to yell at them. But we can get it fixed pronto. Uh, and speaking of the app, uh, the goal is to release version 1 on Monday, December 4th. Now, this version, please don't be mad at me. Uh, will not have the Space Lizard Premium option. I wanted to do that by December, and it just became too much because uh, I'm getting the office going. I'll talk about that in a second. A lot of other things, holidays, kids' birthdays, just life, and I just, I, I would have died trying to get that going, and I wanted also the app, uh, waiting on a few things for that, just kind of some art to get kind of finalized. All that stuff takes a little time, and it just felt right to do it after the holidays. The goal is February 1st. 
because then I can have things kind of uh, be ready. I'm getting the uh, artwork for the for the CD, which recorded lots of other things uh, that'll be done by that time. And uh, yeah, you guys spread the suck. You know, you buy merch, all that. I, I take the money, I get, and I reinvest it in the suck, and I improve it. And I and I just realized uh, uh, recently that I needed to record in a studio, but I didn't have one, so I am creating one. I just leased an office, hired an audio engineer. He's part time for now, hoping to have him go full time. Uh, we're getting new equipment, soundproof in the room. The suck is going to be pro level. He's going to build a new template to increase kind of overall volume, increase quality, you know, just uh, even out the sound so it's the same every single week so there isn't some other podcast that you think the sound is better on. And and I, and I just want to get all that stuff done right, and I want to get done right before we release The Secret Suck, before we launch the Space Lizard stuff. I want to just kick that off with the sweetest sound possible. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's going to take a little time to, to set up the office. Just made an Ikea run yesterday to get all the basics, recording desk, workstations, couch, fun stuff, getting recording gear ordered. And, uh, yeah, and, and we're making the app cooler, which is why it's taking a little longer, too. We're, we, it, I added some things midway. I couldn't help myself. Uh, I just thought it would be fun. And so I, so I threw a couple little bells and whistles on there. And, uh, and getting some new merch in the pipes. Uh, so excited for the new stuff to, to roll out, which should be out in just a few weeks. And, uh, and hopefully kind of continue. It's a few more things coming out afterwards. Just making it all better. It's, it's really exciting, man. And, and, and I did get the Time Suck album that will only be available for Space Lizards. That is the only way you'll be able to get a new album to stand up. It's longer than I thought. I was shooting for like 30 minutes. Ended up being closer to 45. And it's going to be for Time Sucker, Space Lizards only. And I'm very happy with how it turned out. Not going to be on Pandora. Not on Spotify. Not on Amazon, iTunes. You won't be able to buy it anywhere else. Just fucking Space Lizards. God dang it. I uh, had it done Amplified Wax in Spokane, man. And if, and if you ever need uh, some recording work done and you're in the Spokane area, I, I cannot recommend them, uh, you know, a- any stronger. I mean, really did great work. And also, uh, going to have a Black Friday through Cyber Monday Time Suck store sale. 25% off everything in the store. Uh, it's going to be Black Friday through Cyber Monday. Sale's going to start at 12.01 uh, a.m. on Black Friday. Going to roll through until midnight on Cyber Monday. Uh, this is a once a once a year sale. Not going to see deals like this again until next year. Um, so thank you guys so much for letting me just you know do what I love. Keep spreading that suck. Nothing beats word of mouth. Nothing. So for that sale, use the promo code Hail Nimrod. H A I L N I M R O D. All caps. Hail Nimrod to get twenty five percent off in the store Black Friday through Cyber Monday. All right, the Instagram votes uh, were tallied, by the way, for Friday, uh, November 24th. The bonus suck right after Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Happy Thanksgiving week. I guess be thankful that you uh, weren't on the Dietloaf Pass hike is the message of <laughs> this episode. And uh, it's going to be it's gonna be Unit 731, one in the landslide. Unit 731, 490 out of 731 votes. 67% of the vote on Instagram. Crush Tesla came in second. Alexander the Great came in third. Guess we'll just wait on those topics. Teaser for what Unit 37731 uh, is all about after today's narrative. And you guys like it dark. Holy shit, you like it dark. Lucifina may have tempted you a little extra this week. Uh, the vote to determine that suck, by the way, was made on Instagram, at Time Suck Podcast. Follow the suck on Instagram to, to be on board for the next bonus uh, vote in just a few weeks. Thanks to those of you uh, uh, who have bought tickets to that Detroit show on February 16th, 2018 at the Magic Bag we still need more tickets sold in the next few weeks in order to be able to add a live podcast. So please keep it going. Keep pre-buying those tickets uh, so me and the guys from Small Town Murder and Crime and Sports can add a second show, a live uh, podcast. 
know, and then if you uh, if you show up for that too, I can set up many more of the live podcasts. You know, tell your friends in Detroit. Ticket info in the show description. Tell your Michigan friends, family, even enemies to get on get in on that. And uh, more end of 2017 shows coming up. Dr. Grins in Grand Rapids, Michigan, November 30th through December 2nd. St. Louis Funny Bone in St. Louis, Missouri, December 7th through 7th. Uh, sorry, December 7th through 10th. Appleton, Wisconsin, one night only on December 13th at the Skyline Comedy Club on State in Madison, Wisconsin, December 14th through the 16th. And then the Comedy Works in Denver, Colorado, December 28th through New Year's Eve. And so much more coming in 2018. Uh, shows coming up fast in Indianapolis, Providence, Baltimore, Philly, Chicago, Cleveland, Brea, San Francisco, Charlotte, Atlanta, Birmingham, Huntsville, Nashville, Phoenix, Tampa, Miami, New York City, right in Manhattan. So many more places. So please come support me. Get those tickets. Keep this train moving so I can make it bigger, better, more fun. Suck or die, motherfuckers. Suck or die. And now, the Dyatlov Pass incident. Russia, 1959. It's cold. It's communist. People are really into challenging themselves against the elements. The Cold War is alive and well. Mother Russia wants to present an image of Russian youth as being morally and physically stronger than their soft capitalist counterparts. Youth are encouraged to be active in mind and body, be tough. And out of this culture comes a concept of what is now called survival tourism in Russia. In the 50s, you would challenge yourself on courses that were given various grades of difficulty. And if you completed them in a certain amount of time, you were awarded various certifications. And it is out of this culture that the Dyatlov hiking party came up with its adventure. And now let's explore that particular adventure in detail with the Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. January 23rd, 1959, a party of 10 Russian college students left the Svedlovsk railway uh, train station to Sarov. Svedlovsk uh, renamed Yekaterinburg in 1991. Its original pre-communist name was a major Russian industrial center. In 1924, after the Russian Revolution and Russia officially became a Russian state, uh, the city of Yekaterinburg was named Svedlovsk after the communist party leader Yakov Svedlov. Uh, during the 1930s, Svedlovsk uh, was one of several places developed by the Soviet government as a center of, of heavy industry, during which time the famous uh, Yurlmash was built, a massive heavy machine production facility that employed over 15,000 people, built tanks in World War II, heavy equipment such as excavators afterwards, also manufactured blasts, sintering machines, furnace equipment, rolling mills, presses, cranes, etc. for the mining and metallurgical industries located in the Urals and Siberia. Metallurgy being the technique or science of working with uh, or heating metals so as to give them certain desired shapes or properties. Still around, and I'm sure still very popular in Russia. Uh, during World War II, many state technical institutions and whole factories were relocated to Svetlovsk, uh, away from cities affected by war, mostly Moscow, uh, with many of them staying in Svetlovsk uh, after the victory. It's also the city of the first Russian president following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Boris Yeltsin. It's a good-sized city. Over 1.2 million people. Uh, Yekaterinburg is one of the most important economic centers in Russia, and the city's experienced uh, economic and population growth recently. Some of the tallest skyscrapers of Russia are built here. It's also pretty cold. The average temperature in January is 3 degrees Fahrenheit. Sounds fantastic. And it can drop all the way to 50 below. It can drop all the way to just fucking kill me now. That's, that's what 50 below is in layman's terms. 
Uh, fun times, cold and industrial, which is how I think of all communist Russia. Cold winters, cold in spirit, cold concrete buildings. Whenever I'm researching the Soviet Union, I never cr- come across stuff like uh, he worked in a toy factory, which he had dreamed of since spending summers as a youth at a Russian water park. He thought, I want to bring even more joy to Russian children. On the way home, driving his bright yellow Volkswagen bug with a peace symbol bumper sticker, he, he stopped on a malt shop, put a nickel in the jukebox, played some Janis Joplin, enjoyed a cheeseburger, fries, chocolate malt. No, it's always something like, uh, he worked in a bullet factory and then took the train home to a state-issued apartment where he ate onion soup and stale bread and stared off into the middle distance, wishing the neighborhood would practice his mandolin so he could listen to something other than the soul-crushing Russian wind whipping through the cemetery across the ice-covered street. It's always just so fucking dismal and bleak. Anyway, these 10 students back in 1959 were studying at the Ural Polytechnic Institute in Svedlovsk, the biggest technical institution of higher education in Russia. A place where you get degrees in things like chemical engineering, military science, building materials, heat power engineering. So very Russian. These are not liberal arts students. These aren't sociology and philosophy majors going on a nature hike. These aren't kids grabbing crystals and going to find inner peace on some mountaintop spirit center. These are tough communist tech kids going on a winter adventure to prove their survival skills. They were all members of the UPI sports club. It would be an exciting test of their hiking and winter survival skills in the remote northern Ural Mountains, nearly 400 miles to the north. Right? It was, it was midwinter and the conditions would be harsh, yet for these avid outdoorsmen, the trip was a vacation, a fun break from the hard daily rigor of their studies. Trips like this were actually pretty common for Russian students and Russian youth in general. And I guess where else are they going to go? Disneyland, right? Mountaineering, orienteering are popular. Uh, There was an all-union sports classification system that detailed the complexity of various routes, the number of journeys, the length of the journey, the difficulty of nature obstacles to overcome, and then you would gain a ranking. It was a sport. You know, you meet with some communist youth director, tell him you and your other buddies want to tackle some crazy winter off-trail, we shouldn't even be here, adventure, then you get your basic equipment to do it, accomplish it, or die trying. You get marks in your file, maybe get a little extra onion soup for being a good party member. Better chance of picking up a job at the Earl Mash when you graduate. You get what you've always dreamed of, a day shift at the Earl Mash. Praise Stalin! Hail Khrushchev! Khrushchev, whatever the fucking name is. Seriously, though, each member of the group, uh, they were experienced grade two hikers with ski tour experience, and they'd be receiving grade three certification upon their return. Uh, at this time, this was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to traverse 300 kilometers, at least 190 miles. The goal of the expedition was to reach uh, Otapa. Oh, I think it's Otapa. Uh, Otapa, Otapa, it's a uh, O T O R T E N, and I found uh, the Russian pronunciation, but only written. And since I don't know what any Russian letters mean, it does mean nothing. Uh, I noticed that all these Russian videos, I'll look up like if it's an obscure place that's not part of a pronunciation guide. Uh, you put them in like YouTube or you you Google them, and it's just like it's very popular. Like new Russian videos or these GoPro videos, they always just soundtrack. They never actually just speak. Just, uh, you know, does does me no use. Uh, so anyway, I think it's Otop, a mountain 10 kilometers, 6.2 uh, miles north of the site of the incident. The route in February was estimated again as Category 3, the most difficult. Uh, the Communist Party encouraged this type of vacation for youth. It was called active rest. You stay healthy. You learn and you exercise valuable social skills working with the team in the cold elements. Uh, me personally, I prefer, I prefer the very American capitalist vacations of my youth. Built largely around alcohol consumption, good music, uh, no responsibility, and the possibility of drunken sex. And if you're hearing a dingling in the background, it's because uh, 
I just drove back from Seattle with a bunch of stuff. My dog cooped up. I didn't take her little dingle dangle collar off, and she is fucking wound up. Penny is riled. She will not sit still. She's been in the truck too long. So every every once in a while, I just hear a little jingling in the background. I don't know if the I don't know if the mic is picking up or not. And by the time I do know, too late. All right, back to the hikers. Who were they? Uh, the first was uh, Igor Dietlov. All right, who had just turned twenty three, an affable, highly experienced skier, hiker, orienteer. Orienteering, by the way, is a competitive sport in which participants find their way to various checkpoints across rough country with the aid of a map and a compass. The winner being the one with the lowest elapsed time. So these, again, these, these are serious outdoors people. Uh, it's a sport. Uh, in this case, you know, they weren't trying to set any record time. They were just trying to complete it. You know, the trip on schedule. Now, Igor, he was the leader of the ill-fated hiking group. Uh, he had done this trip before. Uh, I mean, this is this is a, the whole incident ended up being named after him. He was a student uh, of the fifth faculty of radio engineering at UPI University, a talented engineer. He designed and assembled a radio during his second year that was used during hikes in 1956 in the Scion Mountains. He also designed a small stove that he brought with him on this trip. We'll be talking about that a lot later. Uh, he courted Zima uh, Komogorova, uh, who also took part in the hike only the previous year. Uh, he had completed the same route, as I said before, and it just was the year before. And, uh, you know, he didn't have any problems that time and figured he wouldn't have any problems this time. And, well, we, we know how that worked out if you're familiar with this story at all. Uh, there were two strong-willed girls in the group. The first was Ludmilia uh, Dubininia. She was a third-year student at UPI University as an engineering and economics major, the youngest of the Dyatlov group, a student in the construction school at UPI with an emphasis on economics. Athletic and strong, she was also a dedicated and outspoken communist. She was active in the tourist club, and she liked to sing and take pictures. And tourist, by the way, in, in this meaning, is not like uh, somebody who goes and travels the world just you know being a tourist. It's, it's just kind of like this outdoor adventuring and stuff is part of like uh, the, the definition of tourism in Russia at this time. She's going out and doing a lot of lot of stuff in nature. Many of the pictures of the of the last trip were shot by her. During an expedition to the eastern Scion Mountains in 1957, she was accidentally shot by another mountaineer who was cleaning his rifle. She endured the painful injury courageously during the long and painful transportation back to base. She did not complain. Uh, instead, she felt sorry for causing the group trouble. That is a tough Russian woman right there. Jesus Christ. I'm I sorry for not moving out of the way. When you, when you carelessly point battle of gun at me while cleaning gun, I'm I sorry for not being more aware of, of your reckless and dangerous nature. It is embarrassing how much I bleed from bullet wound. I, I clean up. No, sit, sit. I, I clean blood. Continue. Clean rifle. Clean rifle. I I go pass out from pain for, for a little bit. Then we continue wood hike. And then we got uh, Zinaida uh, Golmogorova, known as Zina was a fourth-year student at the UPI University uh, as a radio engineering major. She was an experienced hiker who had her share of difficulties as well. Uh, during one of her trips, she was bitten by a viper. Fucking viper. I didn't even know they had those in Russia. I thought it was too cold for snakes. After some quick Googling, turns out there is a snake known as the European adder or European viper. It is venomous, uh, venomous and scary-looking. It tends to be around two feet in length, pretty thick. I don't have the exact diameter with me, but, uh, but uh, just by pictures, pretty thick. Bites rarely kill you, but people have died from their poison venom. This man, snake bites and gunshots. You'd think these ladies might sour on the hiking after that, but nope. Let's get back out there. Let's find eight dudes, share a tent with them. What could go wrong with that kind of sausage party situation? What could go wrong with that ratio of testosterone to vagina? 
Well, despite pain and suffering for the snake bite, Zena refused to lighten her load, unwilling to cause hardship on others. Man, these women are tough. She was very outgoing. She was energetic. People who knew her said she was the engine of the university. She was always full of ideas and was liked by everyone. Despite her popularity in school, she always treated everyone else with interest and respect. As a result, people were naturally drawn to her. She was 22 years old when she died. And there was also seven other dudes. Uh, there was Yuri. Uh, Yuri Krivonyshenko. Yuri studied construction, hydraulics, had also previously experienced disaster. <laughs> of course, I feel like everybody, everybody here has a disaster background. While working in uh, Chelyabinsk, uh, uh, it was a Chelyabinsk 40 was a secret nuclear fa- facility. He experienced a disaster that became known as the Kustomkoy accident. On September 29, 1957, plutonium plant uh, experienced radioactive leak. Yuri Krivonshenko uh, was among the people who was sent to clean it up, experienced massive doses of radiation. I guess he was the in-house court jester. Uh, I don't think that was from the radiation. <laughs> That'd be, that'd be kind of funny if he was like, he was a very somber person, and then he got, you know, he had enough radiation, and it turned him into a clown. Who knew? Who knew? Blistered his skin, and it, uh, you know, fluffed off his mind a little bit. Now, he was uh, he was always looking to amuse his friends with jokes, playing the mandolin. Mandolin come, came up a lot in my research. Apparently, fucking mandolin playing was uh, was big in the late 1950s Russia, which is kind of a sad commentary <laughs> on their music scene. What are you guys into? We're, we got rock and roll kicking off in the States. What are you guys doing? We, we play mandolin. It's, it's good. Wholesome, it is wholesome community instrument. It is easy to learn. You can play, you know, nice melodies on mandolin. Uh, he was five days shy of his 24th birthday when he died. And then we got Rustum, Rustic, uh, Slobodan. Rustic was an athletic man, honest and decent, although quiet at times. <laughs> he also liked to play mandolin. But of course he did. Uh, that often took, uh, he took along during long hiking trips. His, his dad was a professor at another uh, Svedlovsk University. He was 23 when he died. We got Sasha. Uh, it's uh, Z- Zinom Zolotarev, uh, aka Sasha. He was a tough Second World War uh, World War veteran, World War II veteran, an expert in unarmed combat. And he was 38. He was the oldest member of the group by far. Man, uh, I guess the survival rate for local men of the, in, in that area of his age was, according to one source I found, three percent. So up until the Dyatlov Pass trip, Sasha had been pretty lucky. It sounds like he was kind of creepy, too. Why is a 38-year-old going hiking with a bunch of 22, 24-year-olds? Seriously. Like, if I was single, and I suddenly went on a hiking trip with nine other people, and all of them were 10 to 15 years younger than me, that's weird. That's weird. You know, at least at those ages. You know, if one person's 55 and the others are 40, okay. But this dude sounded a little dirty. Uh, Sasha joined the Communist Party after the war. April 1946, he transferred to the Leningrad Military Engineering University. Uh, Later, he transferred to the Minsk Institute of Physical Education. In the early 50s, he worked as a guide for the tourist base of Artibash in Altai, South Siberia. Could have stayed in the Army, but left it. He could have have stayed uh, and worked as a tourist guide at the tourist base, and he moved across the country repeatedly without explanation. Additionally, being a Cossack from the South, I guess it's highly unusual that he never got married, never had kids. And he also had numerous strange tattoos that he hid under his clothing. Uh, these tattoos included his birth year, 1921, military slogans, a few names of unidentified people. Again, kind of creepy. That stuff would come back up, you know, a little bit when there was theories about, you know, what happened to the party. You know, was it like some kind of military retribution? Was he kind of some covert agent that was leading them to their death? I don't know. There's a bazillion theories about this, as we'll find out. Uh, we have Alexander Kolikov. 
Kolotov, there we go. 24-year-old student in nuclear physics, a fourth-year student as a physics major at UPI. Prior to moving to Svedlovsk, he finished the Svedlovsk Mining and uh, Metal... Metal Metallurgy College, uh, majoring in metallurgy of heavy non-ferrous metals. He distinguished himself as a college student. Uh, he was a cautious, studious person who enjoyed smoking antique pipes. Ah, great. We got a pipe guy. We got a Russian hipster on the trip. He wants to hole up in a tent with pipe guy. His friends described him as diligent, pedantic, me- uh, methodical, with clear leadership qualities. His enemies described him as an annoying pipe guy. And then we got uh, Nikolai uh, Vladimirovich. He's 23. He graduated in 19, it was, you know, 1958. He just graduated with a major in civil engineering from UPI. Son of a French communist who was executed during Stalin's uh, you know, tenure. He, he himself was born in a concentration camp for political prisoners, so not the best start to life. His friends liked him for his energy, though. Good sense of humor, generally friendly kind of demeanor. He was a nurturer who often helped younger or weaker members of the group to carry their things. He, he fixed their bags to reduce the pain and make them more comfortable. Uh, Yuri Yudin, uh, only survivor of the group who cut his trip short mentioned that Nikolai helped him in his first serious trips into the Siberian forest. Nikolai uh, promised his mother that this would be his last hiking trip. He was uh, known to friends as Kolya. He was well-read, very funny. I like this Kolya kid. We got Yuri Doroshenko, 21-year-old student of radio engineering at UPA. A lot of Yuri's, by the way. Just, that's not a that's not a mistake. There just happened to be a lot of Yuri's on this trip. Uh, I guess I guess Yuri is Russian for George. We had a lot of a lot of Georges. Uh, he had an impulsive personality. He was famous at the school's hiking club for having run a giant bear, uh, or run at, excuse me, a giant bear with a geologist hammer while on a camping trip. Yeah, I bet that would get your name around campus. Just, uh, who is that? That is Yuri uh, Doroshenko. He once chased bear with hammer. He is a real Russian man. Uh, he once involved, uh, he was once involved in a relationship with Zina Golmogorova and, uh, even had met her parents. I just, I wish just fucking one of these people's last name was Smith or Johnson. God damn it. It's like like tongue twisters, every single one of them. Uh, And then we have Yuri And then we have Okay, anyway. uh, Although they they broke up, he kept a good relationship with her and uh, Igor Dyatlov. Uh, Weird. Why would you go on a three-week hike with your ex-girlfriend? I don't get that. That's something I would never do. Uh, and then another dude uh, that I did not know was going to come up in this episode that was on the hike was uh, Andre Chikatilo. Hear me out. There's no, Okay, there's no record of him officially being on the trip. There's no record of him being in the area at the time. However, he was actually 23 in 1959 in Rostov, where he did most of his killing, as you know if you listen to that episode, about 1,000 miles away, but only just over a day's ride by train. So kind of possible that the Rostov Ripper met up with some hikers at the same age for a little hiking, a little wrestling, a little murdering. I only want to hike and climb mountain. I only interested in that. I like, I like listen to mandolin. I have, I have fun with group. But then one night I, I sneak outside of tent for a quick jerk or soft cock. Campfire make a silhouette of jerking on the side of tent. I, I know not that people in, in tent or watching Shadow Puppet uh, Jerk Show I put on. I not know for group, and I hear snickering. I hear laughing. So I do as Chikatilo do. I get angry. I kill everyone. I stop killing only for moments of coming. No, of course not. Of course, Chikatilo was not on the trip. I actually thought I was done talking about Chikatilo for a while, but then this episode came up, and it was set in Russia. Man, where people died who were the same age as him at that time. So I couldn't help myself. 
there was one other hiker at the beginning of the trip. I mentioned him earlier, uh, Yuri Yudin. Uh, he was another student who would turn back due to illness. Lucky for him, he got sick. He actually had some sciatica and stuff. Wasn't all, uh, I guess, just uh, getting sick. He just had some some back pain. And uh, thank God, thank God his back was aching because that would let him live to the age of 75 instead of being dead at 23. Uh, Sitting by the university's head of provision distribution, the group packed items for their trip, including oatmeal, uh, three kilograms of salt, knives, felt boots, all the other uh, accessories needed for this journey. Rustam Slobodin took his mandolin. Uh, of course he did. Uh, students considered the mandolin to be one of the most important pieces of equipment for the journey, as it would be their main source of entertainment. Now, that's when you know you planned a bad trip, when a mandolin is is your most important piece of equipment. You know, what kind of entertainment are we going to have on this trip? A uh, mandolin. Is it too late to get my deposit back if I cancel now? Uh, Luda Dubinia counted the money they had pulled together. Money was tight. Uh, they had been given 1,000 rubles by the trade union committee at the university, but they had to put in their own money as well. 11th member of the group was supposed to join them, uh, Nikolai Popov, nicknamed the Morose Fellow. That's a fun nickname. Who, who's this bummer? Oh, that is, it is the Morose Fellow. He's, he's nice, but he's morose. Uh, he had agreed with Igor uh, Dietlov to provide his own supplies and equipment and come along. Uh, Popov had already graduated from the university, was not a student. Fortunately for him, he missed the train. I was unable to find out how long this guy lived after the incident or even how old he was. Guessing from the lack of info, he lived a long and uneventful life kind no one writes about. Good for him. Uh, the whole route from Svetlovsk to Mount uh, Otopa uh, with the intermediate stops was more or less uh, directly north-south and approximately 340 miles, 50, uh, 550 kilometers as the crow flies. From the departure to the arrival back in Svetlovsk, uh, the trip was expected to take 22 days. And uh, over two weeks of that, uh, just over three-week trip would be on foot. So January 24th, 1959, by 3 a.m. on the morning of January 24th, having exhausted their stock of songs and being exhausted themselves, uh, Xenia recorded in the diary that the rest of them had all fallen asleep as she surveyed the darkness outside the train window. Now, you'll notice, by the way, anytime you're doing a story in Russia in, like, the 20th century, before, like, I don't know, the 80s, just so much trains. So much trains back then. Uh, after leaving Svetlovsk, uh, well behind them, the train pulled into the town of Serov at 7 a.m., on January 24th, the group arrived in Serov. Uh, Yuri uh, Krivonshenko was arrested by the police for creating a disturbance at the Serov railway station. I guess the policemen had been staring suspiciously at the group, and they must have all felt intimidated, as Zina further noted in her diary that they had not broken or violated any law under communism. The atmosphere of intimidation uh, began to annoy Yuri Krivonshenko as he started singing, which was enough for the policemen to grab him and haul him away. Uh, the police told the group that Section 3 of local railway regulations forbade all activity that would disturb the peace of the passengers. And Xenia made a diary entry about that, which stated that Serov must be the only station in Russia where songs were forbidden. Man, communist Russia, where a student can get arrested at a train for singing. That's terrible. Although, I have been at a fair number of train stations in the U.S. where I wouldn't have minded seeing people get arrested for singing there. Dude, if you're going to sing in public and want people to give you money, please... Learn more songs than No Woman, No Cry, and Bye Bye, Miss American Pie, okay? Maybe learn some James Ingram, fighter of communism, Triple M's right-hand man. Just once, can we figure out what we keep doing wrong? Why we never last for very long? What are we doing wrong? 
just once And can we find a way to finally make it right Make the magic last for more than just one night If we could just get to it I know we could break through it God, with all of our Michael motherfucking McDonald, it's too easy to forget about Jimmy Ingram. Sure, James, the Jamesinator, with karaoke backing track. You don't win two fucking Grammys being a scrub. You all right? Show the guy some respect. You don't land just once on Quincy Jones' album, The Dude. Seriously, he actually uh, released an album in 1981 called The Dude. Awesome. God, being a grown-up in the 80s sounded so fun. James Ingram said a demo to Quincy he recorded for $50, and it became the highest-charting single on the album because he has world-class talent. How did that song only make it to number 17 on the Billboard charts in the summer of 81? Well, who knows what old Yuri was singing at that Russian train station. Probably not James Ingram. Probably not. Probably didn't have some background karaoke music. Probably had some horrific 1950s communist music. I did wonder, like, what were they listening to in, the, in, in Russia in the 1950s? Turns out uh, this is the best they had. Sounds terrible. And then they had this. It's like, it's like the Russian Bing Crosby. Not feeling that? What about this? Falling asleep? Falling asleep right now? I am. Maybe, maybe, maybe go to something a little more, I don't know, a little more this speed. Still make you want to put your head through a wall? Make you want to arrest a student at a train station? Yeah, me too. All right. Well, maybe part of the problem with that arrest is they had some fucking shitty music. All right. Well, eventually, uh, Yuri Krivonshenko was released. The matter was uh, settled amicably. Uh, Serov was more or less halfway from Svetlovsk uh, to Evedel. Sverov, uh, Serov was a much smaller industrial city, about 100,000, an important source of steel manufacturing, iron, silicon mining. It was a cultural hub full of artists, musicians, actors. Had the beginnings of the Russian stand-up comedy scene. Yeah, right. It was another bleak industrial shithole in a sea of communist shitholes. I have watched enough Vice videos to know that Russia has a lot of cool shit going on right now. I know I have some Russian listeners. I know that things are different, but you know better than anyone from the tales of your grandparents and in the 50s nightmare. There was maybe three cities that were fun to live in for a small percentage of the population. Bleak, communist oppression getting served to everyone else. These kids think it's fun to spend two weeks freezing in the woods. That's their vacation. That's how shitty their life was. <laughs> the group had to spend uh, more than 11 hours, or they had more than 11 hours to kill, excuse me, before they could take the next train to Evedale, which left Seroff at uh, 6.30 p.m. They were warmly welcomed at a school close to the Seroff railway station. <laughs> uh, a janitor uh, heated water for them, made arrangements so they could store their equipment. It was a free day for the group, and the diary entry for that day was made by Yuri Yudin. Yudin had wanted to visit a natural history museum or, I'm not making this up, a local factory. I mean, God, how terrible. Like, for, for your vacation, you're going just to a barren, frozen mountain to test your ability to survive. And then on your, like, like one day on the way to the frozen, barren wasteland, when you have, like, 12 hours to do something fun, you're like, let's, let us go to factory. Let us tour factory for fun for day. Oh, 
Jesus Christ. Let us enjoy first non-travel moments. Uh, maybe we can, maybe we can check in with radiator component assembly. How fun is that? Or maybe maybe we can watch industrial solvents get mixed. Or you know let let Americans have their sock hops and leather jackets and poodle skirts and malt and French fries and backseat fornication. I trade factory tour in Greek Russian winter for nothing. Sounds terrible. Twelve p.m. Uh, when the first part of the day uh, school day was over, the group organized a meeting with some school children. Uh, the meeting was held in a small cramped room where the children listened silently as Zoltarev explained what sports tourism was and what they were doing on their trip. And then the three kids that appeared the least interested uh, in the assembly were executed uh, with bullets to the head. Now, that last part didn't happen, but it felt like it could have. Uh, January 24th uh, to the 25th, the group arrives at Evedale Rail- Railway Station. Yeah, Railway Station, just after midnight, and wait there for transport to Vichy. The following morning, Evedale is a small and old Russian settlement of about 15,000 people. It's known as a gold mining settlement and then became a gulag, a.k.a. prison labor camp in 1937. Uh, in a proper town in 1943, it was also the site of the first Russian wooden fortress built east of the Ural Mountains in 1589. So these guys are starting to get off the grid now. I mean, and gulags, by the way, yeah, these prison labor camps, they were all over Russia. They were uh, a, a little less so in 1959. It's been a few years since Stalin. They were kind of easing up on the old gulags. But before that, it was cold, just oppressive, barren, and just loaded with prisons. You know, gulags were like, you know, like uh, to reform people, to make them better communists. They were just, you know, a place to fucking work people to death and get free Russian labor to build more uh, concrete, sad buildings and factories. Uh, January 25th, the group travel from Evedale to Vichy by bus where they spend the night of 25th, uh, kind of going into 26th of January. And very basic accommodations. Uh, their accommodation was described by Yuri Krivonshenko as a so-called hotel, which must have been very basic even by the standards of the austere Soviet Union in the 1950s. There was not enough beds for the 10 members of the group, so two slept to a bed. Uh, and then Sasha and Yuri uh, Krivonshenko, they slept on the floor. This town of Vichy seems tiny. I could find very little info on the web about it. Uh, probably a few hundred people. Guessing more of just, you know, a little shitty bed and breakfast rather than a hotel in this tiny little village. Uh, they leave Vichy, 1.10 p.m. on the 26th, hopping into the back of a flatbed GAZ, GAZ-63 truck to travel uh, to a woodcutter's settlement known as Settlement 41. I bet that was a fun ride. I bet the shocks on that truck were just dynamite. So fun, so relaxing. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure they just bounced around. Ah, on a frozen truck bed in a frozen wasteland. I oh, this is all of it makes me so sad that, they, that this is their life. And 17 below Celsius, just over one degree Fahrenheit, as they're on the back of this truck. After several hours, they make it to Camp 41, where the, where there was also a hostel. Camp 41 sounds like a fun place, doesn't? That, that's a place that doesn't even get a name. It just gets number. That's the shittiest of the shit when you when you're when you're living in a a place in Russia in the 50s that, with, that is just a number. Where where are you living these days? Uh, where uh, Nikolai? Where do I st- I live in Camp Forty One? It is nice. It is like, it is like uh, Los Angeles meets uh, San Diego. It is you know beaches and girls and uh, you know the great restaurants. Kind of a foodie thing going on. No, no, it's like no, it's more like it, it's okay. You know, people not get killed every day. A couple times a week, people get killed. The rest of the time, we you know we watch paint dry and freeze and uh, cut down wood to make uh, places to not want to totally kill selves. I don't know. Uh, January 27th, after spending a night at Settlement 41, uh, where they just uh, stayed in a, in a little uh, private part of the hostel, usually reserved for geologists, 
you know, so at least they didn't have to like, you know, just sleep out in the open, I guess, with everybody else who happened to be there. Uh, they get even further away from society on the morning of January 27th. They leave for an abandoned settlement of around 20 huts, about 15 miles away, uh, using a borrowed horse and a cart to take their packs. So they're just getting, you know, more and more off the grid. They spend the night of the January 27th into the 28th in one of these huts on the banks of the Lavosa uh, River. January 28th, Yuri Yudin decides to turn back and return to Svedlovsk on account of his severe back pain, sciatica, or just realizing that this was the shittiest vacation ever. How much was back pain and how much was like, what the fuck am I doing out here? This place, this sucks. This is worse. I mean, things suck back home, but this sucks so much more. Uh, and not in the time suck way. The, gr- the group of 10 is now down to nine. Their target was to reach the, the 100 and, or a little over 1200 meter, you know, high, uh, Mount, uh, uh, however you say it, it's Otrothen, uh, literally translated as don't go there, <laughs> local Monty language, but they ended up on the slopes of the, uh, 1079 meter tall, uh, uh, Kolat, uh, Siakl, translated as mountain of the dead in the local Monty language. What a fun area. What a fun area. Uh, you're going to want to take a left at Don't Go There Mountain. Uh, you're going to want to take a right at Mountain of the Dead. That's going to put you right in the middle of uh, You'll Be Sodomized by Damon's Valley. And then you're just a hop, skip, and a jump to uh, Donkey Punch by the Devil Wild Game Preserve. It's going to be fucking great. It's going to be the best time you've ever had. Uh, the Monzi, by the way, are the indigenous people of the area. They migrated to the area in the uh, first millennia B.C. The Russians made contact with the Monzi at the tail end of the 15th century. There's under 10,000 Monzi in existence and they were fighters led by chieftain warlords. A bishop tried to Christianize the Monzi in the 15th century, but then in a Monzi raid in 1455, they killed that bishop. Uh, and the fate of the Monzi has been similar kind of to the fate of the American Indian. Industrialization and majority culture expansion has polluted and pushed them from their homelands, and their hunter-gatherer lifestyle has been destroyed, right? And by pollution, by polluted, you know, I just mean their, their lands have been polluted by, like, industrial chemicals and that kind of thing. A uh, quick note on the timeline going forward. Up until this point, up until January 28th, everyone can be, and everything I've said uh, can be independently verified about the journey of the Dyatlov group. Beyond this date, despite the presence of a group diary and a few photographs, nothing can be verified for certain. It's speculation now based on the planned route uh, they were going to take and where their bodies would end up being found. Uh, once Yudin decided to take his leave, the remaining members of the group set out on their skis now, out into the wild terrain and away from any civilization at all. Uh, it was an area that was well-known by Manzi or Monzi hunters, but there was no uh, sign or, or habitation or any kind of, like, settlements. Uh, no sign of habitation, excuse me, or any settlements. Based on diary entries we covered later, they went along uh, this, this route close to the River Lovsa and uh, just kind of in a single file, you know, staying close to each other. Uh, each of the remaining members of the group turns out to they, they kind of take turns in the lead for 10 minutes at a time and kind of be the trailblazer. 5.30 p.m. on January 28th, they stopped to camp for the first night uh, on this part of the journey. The tent had a uh, it was a large one that had been customized by Igor Dyatlov and his friend Boris Lobosov. Uh, it was big enough to sleep nine of them, uh, or all nine of them. It would have accommodated 11, in fact, had Yuri Yudin continued his journey with the, uh, with the group and had uh, Nikolai Popov also made the trip. The interior had curtains, which was uh, they used to make compartments, could afford some privacy so, that, so the girls could change away from the dudes. Uh, Igor had built a stove that would be placed inside the front entrance and the chimney going out of the tent upwards at a right angle. Uh, they cooked dinner, sat around a campfire, alternately uh, talking and singing, accompanied by Rustam's mandolin. What if the mandolin is actually what's to blame for their upcoming deaths? What if one of these guys, you know, probably Sasha, just couldn't handle it, and he couldn't handle it anymore. Just no more fucking mandolin. He just went on a berserker murder rampage and then died himself when one of them fought back, you know? Maybe he died when he was smashed in the head with a mandolin. 
He's like, I hate mandolin so much, as if cold is not enough, as if girls not wanting to sleep with creepy old Sasha is not enough. Uh, girls not impressed by names tattooed on, on my body. Ugh. Argument breaks out that night over who has to sleep nearest the stove. And other than some screaming and some bickering, nothing else, at least according to diary entries, goes on and they all go to sleep. January 29th, the second day of their journey into the mountains on foot, uh, sees them move from the River Lovsa uh, to the River Aspia, uh, a right-hand kind of tributary to the to the Lovsa River. Uh, the group traveled along a sleigh and deer trail on the riverbank used by Monzi hunters. With a weak wind and a temperature of negative 13 degrees Celsius, 9 degrees Fahrenheit, the only thing mentioned in the diary for the day is the occasional appearance of ice on the River Lovsa. Trip sounds truly terrible at this point. I, I mean, I love a good hike, but uh, cross-country skiing, no thanks. Uh, any enjoyment of scenery, uh, I feel like is destroyed by the cold and knowledge that you could die if you just don't keep moving. Do not sign me up for that ever. Uh, if I was going to do that, it would be like an hour round trip max, maybe half an hour max, not a three week round trip nightmare. Uh, January 30th, they, they rise at 8 30 AM, eat their breakfast, depart. The group diary was written, uh, while on the go, their progress along the Aspia river is impeded by ice dams. Although there's not enough ice to actually walk on the river itself. So they just kind of move slightly inland sledge a trail used by the Monzi, right? This third day on foot and ski sees them moving into territory used by the Monzi for hunting. Uh, references made to the tribe and their use of signs and markings on the trees that they pass, which signifies how many local hunters have passed along the trail and to, to which family clan those hunters belonged. Some of the markings also refer to the types of animals in the area. So that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, midway uh, through, they reach an old Monzi camp, not in current use. Uh, the deer path ends and they continue moving across virgin snow. It's hard work. Because the snow is almost uh, 120 centimeters uh, deep, just under four feet deep. They pitched their tents along the banks of the Aspia River. Temperatures plunged to negative 26 degrees Celsius, negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit. January 31st, the sky was clear, but there was a strong west wind that was causing snow to fall from the tops of the trees. The temperature was between 18, negative 18 degrees Celsius, negative 24 degrees Celsius, so around 10 below Fahrenheit. They gradually leave the Aspia River Valley, making slow progress, about a, about a mile an hour. Oh, that sounds fun, right? Just in the fucking 10 degrees outside. You're trudging along. You're making a mile an hour. Uh, they take an old beaten Monzi trail. They noticed it's been used fairly recently by a Monzi hunter. The ground was starting to rise gradually. Going was hard. There's low visibility. The wind's whipping the snow around. They prepare to pitch their tent around 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. that afternoon. The snow cover, about 4 foot, 1.2 uh, meters thick. It's falling. Uh, they spend the night of January 31st at the edge of the forest before continuing the following day. The final part of the last entry in the diary states, tired and exhausted, we start to prepare the platform for the tent. Firewood is not enough. We didn't dig a hole for a fire. Too tired for that. We had supper right in the tent. Hard to imagine such a comfort somewhere on the ridge with a piercing wind hundreds of kilometers away from human settlements. <laughs> Guessing there is a lot of second guessing going on right now. Why did we decide to do this with our vacation? You know, this is just like where we already live, but with literally none of the good parts, like buildings with heaters and windows and roofs and stores where I can buy shitty food that is at least better than no food. Oh, you know, you know damn well no one's pulling out that mandolin at that point. You know, Roostick starts to pull it. Just sho shove it up your ass, Roostick. Fuck you and fuck your mandolin. Uh, February 1st, no more diary entries are made, so now things really get hazy. All we know about travel this day is that it, uh, that it goes, uh, they end up 500 meters off of their planned route, and they pitch their tent on the north slope of the Kolatsvakel, 
which nowadays is called Dyatlov Pass. Thank God. It's a word. It's two words I can say. Uh, they pitched their tent, and then based on autopsies later, at some point, believed to be approximately two to three hours after the tent is pitched, uh, later that afternoon evening, something happens forcing the group to exit the tent as fast as possible by literally slashing their way out of it. So February 12th, the group was expected back in Biche. February 21st, a search party, uh, the search parties are on their way to find these kids. February 26th, the slash tent is discovered by search party members. February 27th, the first bodies are found. Yuri Kravishenko, Yuri Doroshenko are found next to a cedar tree. Uh, this was quickly followed by the discovery of Igor Dyatlov's body, 400 meters from the cedar tree, and then the discovery of the body of Zina uh, Kolmogorova, uh, 500 meters away from the cedar tree. March 5th, the body of Rustim Slobodin is found. Uh, and then you have to go all the way to May 5th, the remaining bodies of Luda Dubanina, Alexander Kolotov, Sasha, Nikolai. Uh, they're found by a den that they had tried to create to protect themselves from the severe weather. May 28th, by uh, May 28th, the case is now closed uh, into how these people died. The investigation concludes that an unknown compelling force had caused the deaths. So let's hop out of this timeline now, explore the crime scene, and examine possibilities of how they may have died. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. All right, so let's talk about the crime scene and go uh, through it as investigators found it. On their last evening alive, after the tent had been pitched, the party was preparing to eat supper, would have been getting ready to bed down for the night, and then something happened that caused them to panic to such an extent that they cut their way out of the tent. Something made them grab their knives, cut their way out rather than just go out the front of the tent. And in their rush to get out, they left behind knives, hatchets, shoes, each had two pairs, uh, one for outside, one kind of soft pair for inside the tent, as well as warm clothes, right? They, they didn't even have time to grab their shoes, just rushing out that fast. And, you know, they left behind everything that would enable them to survive the harsh winter conditions that they faced outside the tent. And these are experienced hikers, experienced, you know, outdoorsmen. They would have known that. They would have known that they needed that stuff to survive, and they don't grab it. So that's odd. Uh, the tents later examined, it could be seen that two large gashes had been made to allow someone of an adult size to get through. Other than the slashes, the tent itself was fine. Uh, it stood at a distance of less than 1,000 feet, 300 meters, from the summit of the mountain they were on. Uh, an initial examination of the tent showed that the location had been selected correctly as it provided good shelter, a good space for, to, for someone to put a tent. And then there are footsteps outside of the tent. And here's what's weird. Eight or nine tracks led away from the tent and down the slope of the mountain for a distance of roughly one-third a mile. And these tracks were shown to have been made by people wearing no shoes, had characteristic uh, columns of pressed snow around where indentations had been made by the footprint. And what the members of the search party deduced was that the eight or nine tracks led down the slope in a single file with a tall man at the back. Occasionally a track would wander out from the main file and then would return as if either wandering or looking for something. And, and just by the, the way the impressions were made, the tracks appeared to have made by someone who was, or people, who were walking. Not, they were, it was like an orderly walking down the hill. Not, uh, not panicked running. So if they're in mortal danger and they had slashed their way out of the tent, why didn't, why did they form an orderly line and just kind of go down the slope at what appeared to be a, a walking leisurely pace? Very odd. On the morning of uh, February 27th, the first two bodies are found. Two members of the main search party were looking for a new spot for a campsite of their own before resuming the search. They approached a cedar tree downhill from the tent, and as they drew near, they noticed two bodies lying in the snow. These were the bodies of Yuri Kravashenko and Yuri Doroshenko. They're laying side by side, 
almost stripped to their underwear as having bare feet, as well as having bare feet. And weird, uh, they both had boners, and the tips of the boners were touching, which is odd, you know, unless you're a fan of the Tom and Dan, you know, Mediocre Time podcast, and then you know all about tip-to-tip touching. No, their wieners were not touching. Of course they're not. That's crazy. Uh, Their balls were frozen together, though, which is arguably even weirder. Apparently, they rubbed their sweaty balls together to stay warm, which I have done many times camping. Very normal. You get cold, you rub your balls against someone else's balls, and you, you use that friction to kind of heat up your bodies, as I was taught as a child. <laughs> and then the temperature, for, you know, it, you know, it drops and it froze their, it froze their balls together. No, that n- none of that is true either. Uh, but I wanted so badly for you to believe it was. I just, I was so tempted to lie and just keep going. No, uh, just, you know, but it, would, it, it was fun to me to think that whenever you would hear about the Dietlov Pass incident, you would think about guys with their balls frozen together, which you may still think about just because I've talked about it so much. No, their bodies were kind of next to each other, like, like they were kind of together, possibly for warmth. None of, it, none of the ball or, or penis stuff was true. No, near their bodies were the remains of a, of a fire in which there were tops of small trees which had been cut with a knife. Later deduced that Yuri Kremoshenko and Yuri uh, Doroshenko uh, may have tried to keep the fire going as long as they could, believed to be a period of like one, one and a half hours, not sufficient enough uh, of a fire to, to keep them warm in freezing conditions. There were burn marks on their hands and feet, which are believed to have been caused when they put their frost-bitten feet and hands into the fire uh, to warm, but did not feel the pain of being burnt. And it is believed that they froze to death while sitting next to this fire. How fucked is that? You're putting your hands actually into the fire. You're burning your hands, still can't stay warm, still die of hypothermia. Uh, the cedar tree was about a mile from the tent. The branches were broken to a height of approximately 13 to 16 feet. Looked as though members of the group had climbed the tree, broken off branches to make the fire, as well as using a knife to cut smaller sec- sections of the wood. Uh, pieces of skin from one or more members of the group also were found on the tree where they had scraped themselves climbing up. Oh, man. As more members of the search party arrived at the scene, another body was found roughly 300 meters, again, 1,000 feet from the same cedar tree, uh, the body of the group leader, Igor Dyatlov. Igor was lying on his back with his head pointing in the direction of the tent. And someone had drawn a dick on his forehead with a sharpie, so it is assumed that earlier that night he was the first to fall asleep. Uh, no, nothing was drawn on him. Monty hunters and their dogs found the body of Zina uh, Kilmogorova, uh, she was found approximately one-third of a mile from the other bodies, and like Igor, her body was pointing towards the tent. So it appears that these first four had all been together near a cedar tree, had started a small fire, and then maybe upon realizing the little fire wasn't going to keep them warm, uh, maybe then Igor and Zena had tried to get back to the tent. Now, on March 2nd, another search party found a base camp that hikers had made down by the river where they stored a bunch of equipment, including 120 pounds uh, of food, a pair of skis, ski shoes, uh, Rustic's mandolin, all these items being found weeks later seems to rule out that the students were being followed by someone who was intent on robbing them. You know, there aren't a lot of bright spots, uh, you know, to this tale, uh, being that they all died, but at least they did not have to listen to that stupid mandolin in their final hours. Uh, on March 3rd, the body of Rustic uh, Slobodin was found. His body was near the bodies of Zena and Igor. Uh, it was initially missed due to just being a little more hidden in the snow. He was 600 feet ahead of Igor, 500 feet behind Zena in a straight line headed towards the tent. All three appeared to have been trying to crawl back to the tent. Uh, the other bodies would be found two months later. On May 4th, the remaining four bodies are found 230 feet away from the cedar tree. Uh, 
where the first group had started the small fire. Their bodies were found under 15 feet of snow. Why were they apart from the, uh, from the other hikers? Nobody knows. Maybe there was a disagreement on how to survive once everyone left the tent and the party split into two camps. Maybe they tried to dig a hole into the snow and form, you know, some kind of shelter, uh, a little snow cave. Maybe, maybe this whole thing was a big snowball fight. It just went on too long, and, uh, you know, they were, there were two teams. Maybe they were playing the dumbest game of capture the flag ever. Nobody knows. Whatever it was, the bodies of Luda, Alexander, Sasha, and Nikolai were all found together. Luda found wearing clothes taken off of Yuri Kravonshenko and Yuri Doroshenko, so it's assumed that, you know, uh, they died first. They took the clothes off of those guys, gave them to, or, you know, put up, Luda put them on herself or was given them by somebody else trying to keep her alive. And then she was, you know, she froze, she froze as well. Uh, but now let's talk about some injuries, some non-hypothermia injuries. There was a number of troubling, confusing injuries. Uh, Yuri Doroshenko had pulmonary en- uh, edema, excess fluid in his lungs causing difficulty of breathing. He had pulmonary uh, contusion or a bruised lung as a result of blunt trauma. He had burns on his foot and his right temple. His ear, nose, and lips were covered in blood. Experts describe the injuries, bruises, and abrasions as non-life-threatening. And I'm not kidding. This is not one of my weird things. Explain them as Doroshenko hitting himself with, with rocks and ice, like in the face, and other surrounding objects in his final moments of extreme agony. Like that's, I guess, that's a thing people do sometimes when they're just, they're cold and they're frustrated. They just grab shit around them and just bash their faces. Just like, I'm just picturing them trying to explain that with a straight face to, you know, somebody questioning with, you know, questioning them about the investigation. Why was his face bloody? Uh, well, we feel most likely from hitting self in face with rocks and, and ice and hard ice. Uh, young Russian children, you know, often taught at early age when going gets tough, uh, hit self in face with rocks is what we think. Uh, the official cause of death uh, is listed as hypothermia, and uh, also he was found with no shoes on. Uh, Yuri uh, Krivonshenko, he bit a piece of his own knuckle to either stay awake or stifle a cry. He had third-degree burns that cannot be sustained if you fall asleep still alive. Uh, the presence of skin between his teeth that was torn from his right hand or from his hand might suggest that he tried to stay on the cedar tree as long as he could, tried to awaken his irresponsive hands by biting himself, or he was trying to stifle a cry. Just odd. Uh, he also had burns on his left leg and left foot. Official cause of death, though, it listed as hypothermia. And again, not wearing shoes. Uh, Igor Dyatlov had been vo- vomiting blood in his final moments. He also had a uh, metacar- metacarpal phalangeal joints on his right hand uh, were bruised. He had bruised knuckles, is what that is. This is a common injury, uh, you know, in hand-to-hand fights. You know, when you make a fist, it's a part of the hand you use to hit somebody with. So that's odd. Who was he hitting? Igor also wasn't wearing shoes at the time of his death. And uh, and again, the official cause of death is listed as hypothermia for him. Uh, Zina Golmogovra, uh, she had a baton-shaped bruise on her wrist. I mean, could that be another injury from a fight? Was she restrained? Did someone grab her wrist, violently pull her? She also had numerous unexplained abrasions on her face and hands. Official cause of death is listed as hypothermia, but it is uh, listed as hypothermia due to violent action. She also had uh, no shoes on, but did have three pairs of socks and multiple layers of clothes. Uh, Rustic, Rustic Slobodin, suffered blunt trauma to the head. He had a fractured skull. Someone or something had hit him. Uh, medical autopsy further states that Slobodin probably suffered loss of coordination due to initial shock right after the blow that could have sped up his death from hypothermia. His bell was severely rung, and he wouldn't have been thinking properly after that injury. Despite these, his injuries, hypothermia was still listed as the official cause of his death. Uh, and also with Igor, 
bruises on his knuckles. Uh, and unlike Igor, Igor had bruises on one hand. Uh, Rustic had bruised knuckles on both his hands. So he was he was doing fighting as well uh, in his final days for some reason. Uh, Luda Dubinina, uh, her corpse was found missing her tongue. Uh, if you looked into this uh, story at all on your own, that comes up a lot. No tongue and no eyes. However, she was laying on kind of a natural ledge with water rolling over it, which could have sped up the uh, soft tissue uh, putrefa- putrefaction. Uh, some scavenger, you know, could have taken her eyes and tongue. By scavenger, I do mean critter, not just like some dude, you know, look of eyeballs and tongues. Uh, however, she was also um, found with 100 grams of coagulated blood in her stomach, which could indicate she was still alive when her tongue was ripped from her head. Doesn't definitely indicate that, but it does lead one to believe that's very possible. The blood then pulling in her stomach from the car- from carnage in her mouth. Uh, her nose was broken, as were four ribs on her right side. She was missing her upper lip. Did some creature attack her Is that when she was still alive, right? Uh, and again, like all the others, uh, no footwear. Her cause of death was not hypothermia. It was listed as hemorrhage of the right atrium of the heart, multiple fractured ribs, and internal bleeding. So something bad happened to her, man. Not only was her face all messed up, you know, her, her, her ribs, she had gotten hit hard in the body by something. But what? It is worth noting that none of the bodies showed any signs of sexual activity near the time of death, uh, whether consensual or non-consensual. No signs of sex with this group. Uh, they were, you know, they were pure Russian youth, uh, here for snow only, snow and hiking. Uh, there was no tomfoolery. This is not America. Uh, Sasha's corpse, the older guy, he was found missing his eyeballs. Uh, creepy. He's also found holding a pen and a notepad, but he hadn't written anything down. Uh, it's possible that he was about to write a note. Has anyone seen my fucking eyeballs? <laughs> I, that's, uh, I don't know why that made me laugh. And his chest had been crushed. Uh, on the right side, there were two fracture lines throughout his ribcage. Uh, ribs two through six were all broken. I was really messed up when I said that. Oh, and now I'm sorry. Now I'm laughing at the fact that I laughed at saying something so horrific. I, I get so jaded with these. Uh, yeah. He also had an open wound on the right side of his skull with exposed bone. A lot of his wounds were in line with those uh, suffered from experiencing the shockwave of a bomb. So that's odd. Uh, that comes up a lot in stories, uh, you know, with, was there some kind of crazy military weapons testing going on? His crushed chest was what caused his death. He died of internal bleeding, not hypothermia. Alexander's corpse was found missing some soft tissue around the eyes as well. The eyeballs themselves still in the sockets. Uh, so, you know, so maybe maybe Sasha, maybe Sasha was writing Alexander a note. Could you, could I borrow one of your eyeballs? Could I have at least, could I have one of your eyeballs? Uh, you, have, you have two eyeballs, I have none. Uh, the skull bones were exposed on uh, Alexander's corpse. He had a broken nose, open wound behind his left ear. He also had what on the autopsy report is strangely called a deformed neck. That's the exact verbiage, a deformed neck. It doesn't say broken. I'm assuming broken, but that's a weird way to write it. Was, it, was his neck broken? It, 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 kind of. It, little, it was deformed. It was, def, it was bent in U-turn shape, which is unusual for neck. Uh, his injuries similar to those from someone who dies in a fight, snap neck, blow to the back of the ear, consistent with how uh, special forces in that area, you know, the Russia, uh, would kill someone. His official cause of death was hypothermia despite his injuries. Not sure how a deformed neck doesn't kill him, but I guess, to be fair, uh, I'm not a neck doctor. Nikolai's corpse was found with severe internal head trauma, an injury consistent with a high-speed car crash or fall from several stories high or more. There was no damage to the soft tissue of his head, like to his face. So no external damage, lots of brain damage. Uh, head trauma is what caused his death. 
All in all, nine people die, the whole party from a mixture of hypothermia and injuries consistent with being attacked. Sex is not a factor. No one is having it, and at least two of the nine hikers had hurt their hands in a manner consistent with punching somebody. Uh, no one had any fucking shoes on. Some are huddled up, perhaps in a snow den. Some seem to try and make it back to the tent. It's anywhere from around negative 25 to negative 30 degrees Celsius, negative 13 to negative 22 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. The wind is blowing. A fire roughly a mile from the tent has started. Eyes are missing. Are we sure it wasn't Chikatilo? I don't know if you remember that from his episode, but he did take many a victim's eyes, you know? What, what I say, I, I very sentimental. I take eyes. I put, I put eyes in jar. I, it's for fun. I show, I show, I, I jar to kids. I play a game of I let you live if you guess amount of ice in jar. I kid, I kidding. That's that's messed up. I, I no, I let no one live. I let no one live. Uh, a couple guys uh, have had severe head injuries. A couple hikers have had severe rib cage and internal injuries. And you know, and some the, the clothes the hikers were wearing were found to have high levels of radiation. That's also a thing. Uh, two of the hikers had high levels of radiation on their clothes. What the fuck happened? Well, before I look into legitimate explanations, let's look into what some wackadoodles have to say. Let's check in with the idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. Internet. Under a YouTube video called Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, Dyatlov Pass, I love the vague they. Who doesn't want me to know this? They. They don't want you to know. Under this video, a user Swagger Like Us posts, the crazy part is there's way more cases like this worldwide, and there's a shadow government c- cover-up going on to hide what's truly behind them. Is that the crazy part, or is the crazy part you posting a random statement uh, as fact, even though you have absolutely no proof of what you're talking about? If there's way more cases, why didn't you list one of them? What, what is the agenda of this shadow government? How many times have you watched each and every single episode of The X-Files? User Eric Osteeling caused me to laugh so hard I almost choked on a protein bar I was eating. I was researching when he posted, here are the facts. I took a shit. This is where it gets crazy. I didn't wipe. That has, no- <laughs> that has nothing to do with Yatlov's past or idiots, but it made me laugh and I wanted to share it. Uh, user Ye the Dinosaur casually solves a mystery posting, I think they died because there was, <laughs> I think they died because there was a machine that the government made and it killed and some went crazy and stripped themselves, ripped the tents apart and ripped out their tongues. And underneath this, the trash man replies, of course, why didn't we think of this earlier? Exactly, trash man. I love it when people present half-baked nonsense as an obvious solution. It's easy, guys. The government made a kill machine. They made a machine that makes some people rip their tongues out and go crazy and kill each other. Next mystery. Next problem. Uh, user, User Sheldon Ludlow poses an important question. He asks, why no mention of the photograph of the Yeti found in the negatives in the camera one of the students had? Uh, I'll take this one. Sheldon, uh, if you're listening, uh, it's because the Yeti photograph doesn't fucking exist. Because the Yeti has never been photographed, ever. Not in this case, not in any other case. Stop talking about the Bigfoot and Yeti, all right? Still, still believe in those monsters? I have two words for you. Google Earth. We have photographically mapped the entire planet all of it. We would have found one of these apes if one was to be found on Earth. There was only one Sasquatch, and his name is Nimrod, god of time suck, space Sasquatch with the head of a chupacabra who rides atop a black unicorn. Hail Nimrod! Praise his alpha and omega ball sack of life and knowledge. User Brian Bernstein writes, It was the military. 
these kids stumbled across an Area 51 type place and they were killed for it. Why else were the footprints down where they found the bodies in a walking pattern and not running? The military marched them down and killed them. No, Brian, no, it wasn't. It was, do your homework. It was an approved hike. They didn't stumble onto some secret military base. They barely went off course. They went a couple hundred meters off course of a, of a hike route sanctioned by the government. Why, why would the government encourage citizens to hike near an experimental weapon site? They, they wouldn't. They, at least they wouldn't with college students, not the good ones, right? They might, they might encourage some, you know, uh, people in society they consider less desirable, some people, you know, maybe they were maybe some lepers. Maybe they'd take some. That's where the lepers get to go for their hikes is in the military uh, weapons site. But no, they're not. They didn't send these college into a just weapons testing area. Just Boris, I was thinking we plan new hike routes for communist youth at, at, at university. Perhaps have them walk through middle of area, frequent bomb testing. First, they hike to bomb testing, then through secret weapon firing target practice, then to poisonous gas disposal area. It'd be a nice challenge for youth. You know, make them strong. All right, let's talk about one more dummy, one more person who takes the time to write but not research any opinions they have before typing them out. Uh, user Dennis Carroll posts, it's the work of demon UFO. <laughs> it's the work of demon UFOs. The evil spirits control them, cutting the tongue as part of the game they play for their own sick uses. They also cut cow tongues commonly. About 10% of those words were spelled correctly. I can't believe I actually got through that, not uh, uh, messing up on some stuff. So much scary here. I, I clicked this guy's profile, old Dennis, and he doesn't appear to be a troll. Uh, worse, he appears to be a parent of several young children uh, who he talks to about, uh, who he tells, you know, stories to these kids about demons. He's talking about demons on other videos uh, to the kids. He's a 45-ish white dude. Uh, and again, based on his videos, uh, he seems to work as a painter just by the stuff he was wearing in one of them. Seems to enjoy going fishing. He was fishing in a few of them. And again, talking about demons. That's one of his favorite things. So, so crazy to me to think that there's this man out there, some dude named Dennis Carroll, who truly believes that, that the Dyatlov Pass incident uh, is explained by demon-controlled UFOs who take people's and cows' tongues for their own sick uses. Really? I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that he believes this and it spells about one out of every 10 words correctly. When I read shit like this, I just, want, I just want to go back to school. I just want to go back and I want to study anything. God damn it, education is important. I know that universities are ripping us off left and right. I know they're overpriced, but if you can get a scholarship or grants or low-interest loans that won't prevent you from you know, buying a house or you know, starting off life with crippling debt, if you can get into community college, affordable state school, you know, if you have the family money to burn at a private expensive school, go. If you can audit classes for free, do it if you have the time. If you can go to the library and just read some stuff here and there, fucking get, get in there. Fight the good fight. Combat ignorance with education. Don't, don't be Dennis. Make the world a better place. Help our species continue to evolve and push forward and refuse to become an idiot of the internet. Idiots of the internet. Okay, so what did happen if it wasn't a Yeti or demon UFOs or the military? Well, actually, let's look at those theories I just mentioned first. Let's look at Yeti. The Discovery Channel actually ran a documentary called Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives. And of course they did. The Discovery Channel has as much scientific credibility as World Weekly News tabloid. It is shit. It's as, it's as, <laughs> it's as educational as TMZ. And I guess in this show, some investigators, if you can call them that, set out to prove that the, the giant tongue-eating yeti, or mink, as the Monzi called him, did this. 
And, and if you think it's odd that the Monzi have their own Yeti mythology, right, if that makes it more real to you, no, there's giant man mythology in almost every culture and has been uh, since the beginning of time. I, I break it down kind of the why in, in Time Suck, episode 26, Sasquatch versus a Loch Ness Monster. Uh, the central showpiece of that program uh, is a black and white, not the, the one I'm talking about, but the Discovery Channel one, is, is a black and white still photograph showing a dark, unidentified figure standing in the trees. It's introduced with stark on-screen text saying, The following image is one of the last photos taken by the hikers. It is being shown on television for the first time. Well, it's probably being shown on television for the first time because you just fucking made it up. It's presented evidence that a Yeti was stalking the Doom Party through the woods. And to my eye, it is an obvious hoax. It is obvious photoshopping. Someone dropped a Yeti-ish figure into the back of the photo. Uh, but as much as I hate Sasquatch talk, I wasn't there, so I guess I have to allow for the slimmest of slim possibilities that those Russian hikers died at the hands, or, or paws, is it? Claws, perhaps? Furmittens. Or they died at the furmittens of a Yeti. Or several Yetis. I don't know, maybe they kill in packs. I don't know a lot about them. You know, I don't know anything about them, you know? But if, if we're going to go there, I also like to add that it may have been a leprechaun that killed them. If we're going to allow for Yeti, then we have to allow for leprechaun. Or maybe it was a jingle jangle. Maybe a jingle jangle. You know, what's that? I don't, I don't know what, what it is. is it's shut the fuck up and stop talking about jingle jangles, right? That's what it is. Actually, uh, just some words that popped into my head and that, that may describe a creature I've never seen before or thought about before since I wasn't there. Maybe that thing did it. It could be anything. If we, if we allow for Yeti, we allow for everything. What about UFOs? That's another popular theory. It's always a popular theory when someone disappears with no witnesses, especially way out in the woods, right? Uh... I guess mostly went in the woods. If you disappear in the city, it's harder to blame UFOs because there's people that were like, no, they weren't there. I like I like UFOs. I, I uh, you know, I like the possibility of UFOs. I have to, I have to, I have no reason to believe that they're controlled by demons like Dennis Crazy Pants Carol, but they may exist. We don't know what's out there in space. And if they did want to fuck with somebody without anyone, you know, seeing them, without getting caught, I don't know why they'd be worried about that, though, if they have spaceships. But if they were worried, you know, the Diet Love hiking crew would have been a good group to mess with. And they are in the middle of nowhere. And, and here is actually some interesting info from, from investigators about that theory. Uh, Lev Ivanov was the man who was in charge of the investigation at the Elof Pass. Almost four decades later, after the fall of communism, after retiring in the early 1990s in an interview to a local journalist, uh, Ivanov made a statement that during his investigation initially, he and another investigator both noticed that the pines in the forest around the Dyatlov kind of uh, crime scene were burned at the top. He also claims that A.P. Kirilenko, member of the Soviet Congress, along with his advisor, A.F. Ashtokin, uh, or Ashtokin, uh, forced Ivanov to take out any reference to the unknown flying objects or other strange phenomena. This included pictures of flying spheres drawn by the Monzi hunters and other testimonies, such as people in the area seeing strange nighttime lights around the time of, this, this, uh, of the disappearance. Probably some fucking space lizards, you know? Probably some new... Lizard Illuminati ancients coming to Earth to crawl into their lizard tunnels, take over more of our world leaders. Goddamn space lizards. That has to be it. Supposedly, included in Ivanov's original report was this. When E.P. Masalinikov and I examined the scene in May, we found that some young pine trees at the edge of the forest had burn marks, but those marks did not have concentric form or some other pattern. There was no epicenter. This once again confirmed that heated beams of a strong but completely unknown, at least to us, energy were directing their firepower towards specific objects, in this case people, acting selectively. I mean, that's what he says. That's what he says. Uh, you know, it's just kind of his word 
uh, that, that this was in his original report. Uh, and also, I should note that he was paid to give this interview late in life. So, so perhaps there was financial incentive to whip up an interesting story for him to tell. But, uh, you know, perhaps he was telling the truth. Maybe some, some weird UFO shit went on out there. Uh, military testing, you know, some weapons testing. That's a popular theory with uh, the Dyatlov Pass. Memos eventually surfaced that revealed the Russians had been testing rockets roughly in the area of the hike. However, the military denied any tests were being done in that area during the dates of the hike. But a 2008 conference at the Ural State Technical University, together with the Dyatlov Group Memorial Foundation, did decide that military testing was to blame. The Federal Security Service responded that all those involved in the case had long since died. Now, if this did happen, I doubt it was intentional, but, but maybe someone messed up. Maybe some type of weapon was detonated in the area, and then they realized the students had planned to hike in the area. Uh, I don't believe the students were killed intentionally, despite what some on the web claimed. This, this area was not off limits. Again, this was an approved planned hike. The Soviet Union had millions of political prisoners and gulags around the nation that could easily kill some of those poor bastards. They didn't need to kill well-liked and high-achieving college kids again. Uh, that's ridiculous. So, but, so that's those three theories, and there are so many others. One theory uh, revolves around infrasound. Uh, you know, the infrasound, uh, I guess, waves might have been responsible for, for sudden, unpleasant feelings amongst the hikers. A man named Donnie Icar, author and filmmaker responsible for the Kurt Cobain documentary, Soaked in Bleach, also wrote a book called Dead Mountain, the untold true story of the Dyatlov Pass incident. He's a man who spent five years researching the incident, undertook the dangerous trek himself, believes that a wind phenomenon called a Carmen Vortex Street could have produced a terrifying, powerful sound, which has proven to induce irrational fear in humans. Due to the unique topography of the Mountain of the Dead, which is a perfect dome shape, the fierce winds that blow through the pass could have been warped as they struck the blunt surface of the mountain. The wind, which was blowing in a straight line, which had been twisted into a series of small but powerful tornadoes, they would tear down either side of the pass. The tornadoes uh, spinning fast enough to tear the roofs off buildings would have created a deafening noise, even if they missed the tents, as Icar's theory suggests. Under certain circumstances, they could also produce a more subtle and terrifying phenomena known as infrasound. The opposite of ultrasound, infrasound is a type of vibration in the air which has a frequency so low it cannot be picked up by the human ear. But a succession of studies has shown that it can have marked effects on the human body, including loss of sleep, Shortness of breath, extreme dread. ICAR, backed by scientists in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States, believes that a combination of these effects on infrasound, the deafening noise of tornadoes, and the claustrophobic pitch-black tent could have unseated even the most steady-minded adventurer. A 2003 study in the UK found that a fifth of people exposed to infrasound reported feeling anxious, scared, or unable to breathe properly. Another theory holds that waves are linked to ghost sightings. Icar's hypothesis for the Dyatlov Pass holds that the whirling tornadoes would have been able to produce infrasound in sufficiently high levels to induce panic in the slumbering hikers, after which the Siberian weather did the rest. You know, so it made them go crazy. They cut the wear of the tent, and then they died, you know, because uh, they were <laughs> stuck out in the cold with, with a, not having a tent anymore. Who knows? I don't claim to understand the science behind that, but according to numerous scientists, it is possible. Carmen Vortex Street. What a strange phenomenon I had never heard of before. Then there's the avalanche theory, uh, you know, but this one doesn't hold much weight with me because the mountain they were on wasn't uh, that tall and it wasn't that steep. While some mountaineers have said it's possible this could have happened and caused the hikers, you know, uh, to want to get out of the tent immediately, which, you know, gives reason to cut their way out of the tent. Various experts have shot this one down as being very highly unlikely, 
to have happened where they were and, and when they were there based on the uh, historical kind of weather conditions, various geological factors uh, of the time that these kids were there. So I'm going to say no on this one from everything I saw. And once they got out, there's, there's just no evidence that they continued to run around panicking as they may have if there had been an avalanche, so, so probably not. And then there's a theory that the Monzi killed them since there were no prison breakouts from the local uh, corrective labor colony, local gulags, uh, the next in line to be suspects for the for you know where the indigenous Monzi people lived in the area. Now, Monzi had been in this area where the bodies were found around the time of the hikers dying, so it is possible they could have done it. Uh, Monzi knew the area, definitely had the skills to hide their ski tracks and hunt the hikers into the woods. Monzi are proud and secluded people who consider those mountains uh, their sacred hunting grounds. There is a chance a, a verbal confrontation broke out between some Monzi and the, and the hikers could have escalated and turned physical. However, uh, again, why why would the hikers cut their way out of the tent in that situation? And why didn't they, you know, more of them have obvious wounds from being attacked with a, with a blunt instrument or a sharp one or a gun? I, I doubt it was the Monzi. And the Monzi of the 20th century have no reputation for doing anything like that at all. Very unlikely. Uh, this theory really only exists because the Monzi happened to be the closest people to the hikers when they died. Uh, there's a theory that revolves around shrooms, the psychedelic mushrooms. I guess uh, a strain of them grow in that area and can be found even under the snow in the winter. And there's a theory that either the hikers found some, ate too much, and went kind of crazy, just fucking went bananas and cut their way out and, you know, ended up down trying to start fires instead of staying in the tent. Or that the Monzi, uh, who did hunt these mushrooms for spiritual purposes, came across the hikers and a fight ensued because of the shrooms. Again, this seems like a real stretch. Uh, the Monzi part seems like a stretch. I will say, being on, be, having been on psychedelics... Uh, this theory makes a little more sense than the other ones I, I'd come across previous to this point in the episode. Uh, but again, highly doubt it. Highly, highly doubt it. It'd be super weird for all nine hikers to have the same bad trip if that's what happened to them. There's paradoxical undressing. Uh, this theory, which paradoxical undressing is a term for a phenomenon frequently seen in cases of lethal hypothermia. Shortly before death, the person will remove all their clothes as if they were burning hot when in fact they are freezing. It's also known as cold stupid. Uh, this could explain why many of the members were in various states of dress. However, it doesn't explain, again, why they cut their way out of the tent in the first place. And while this could have added to their death in the final moment, in their final moments, uh, it doesn't explain to them, you know, like, like the other injuries, uh, you know, why they broke out from different groups once they went down there. It, it just, you know, is kind of like part of the explanation of their, of their final moments and, the, and, and why they were dressed the way they were. Uh, and, and there's a ton of other gibberish theories as well, like, you know, the nefarious, nefarious scientists, you know, teleporting there and attacking the hikers. <laughs> Not kidding. Uh, there's a theory that the massive ball lightning strikes scared the hikers into running for the tree line. But if that's true, why would you, why would you cut your way out of the tent? Uh, why not just open, uh, you know, go out the open end and just walk out? Especially if footprints from the site showed that people were walking, not running. There's there's weird KGB kind of theories, uh, very even some CIA stuff. Like there was some uh, some secret CIA base there of Americans hiding out, you know, doing some Cold War shit, and the, the Americans killed them. Or the KGB thought they were doing something with the Americans and they killed them. I mean, just just kind of nonsense stuff. Uh, and there's other ones I know some listeners have sent in, you know, based on various movies and stuff, but uh, they just didn't seem credible to me. The ones that I came across. I, I did find one that I think could be it. I think this could be the explanation. Sorry to say it's not very sexy, uh, and it involves a, that, that stove that Dyatlov made, his homemade stove, and it involves a smoke-filled tent. Now, a very clever Swedish vlogger who goes by Lamino 
put together a great YouTube video explanation of this mystery, and he thinks the entire incident is the result of a fire in the tent and was started by Dyatlov's homemade tent soap. He's very convincing. I tend to believe him. And here's his uh, summation. This is in his own words. Why would they leave the tent? I would argue that the only thing that could make them leave would have to be an immediate threat inside the tent. If something was outside, such as an animal or a UFO, then there would be no reason to cut the tent open. There were no signs of an avalanche. However, they could have escaped believing an avalanche was tumbling towards them. The problem with that theory is that the footprints showed them walking in a calm and orderly manner down the slope as opposed to running away in panic. So something caused them to panic inside the tent, but once outside, they calmed down and made a conscious decision to walk down the slope. Their external stove was a completely unique and homemade design as the leader of the group had built the stove himself. We know that they had used the stove on the night of the incident before the incident took place as partially eaten pieces of fried ham and bacon were found inside the tent. I think that after dissembling the stove and removing the exhaust pipe, the embers inside the stove were accidentally reignited. As the exhaust pipe had been removed, the smoke would have filled the tent in seconds. As they attempted to get control of the flame, they cut a few holes at the top of the tent to vent the smoke. When that didn't work and it became increasingly difficult to breathe, the side of the tent was slashed open and they all escaped in a state of panic. The burn marks on the bodies and the clothing could have been from the scalding hot metal stove. Several members of the group were found with blood around their mouth and coughing up blood could be a symptom of smoke inhalation. Some of them were intoxicated, which would have affected their judgment as well as their sensibility to the cold. Lending credence to this possibility is a photo taken uh, of Alexander Kolotov uh, the day before he died wearing a severely burnt jacket. Now, did he burn it on the stove the day before? There is a diary mention that the first night they camped and set up the tent, the stove presented some problems when they made their fire. Now, Igor didn't buy this thing. Again, he built it. Now, as for the other kind of like violent injuries, uh, here's what I think. I'm, I'm adding on to Lamino's uh, theory here. I, I think, you know, let's say the stove does start a fire and they have to slash the way out of the tent. And these are experienced hikers, right? Like there, there is no choice. They, they're like, they're dying from smoke inhalation. They slash their way out. They run out. They, they get outside. The smoke is no longer, you know, threatening them. So that's why they're not continuing to run. Once they're outside, then they're like, fuck, what do we do now? These people are smart enough to know that like, they can't go back in the tent, but they can't just wait for very long because they're going to die of hypothermia. They got no shoes. They just you know, made it out as fast as they could. So then they take a march down the hill to the trees below you know, where they ended up where the bodies were found in that area and think like, okay, let's start a fire. And then maybe when they get down there, tensions flare, all right? Uh, they're pissed off. Somebody, you know, messed up when they were dissembling that 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 stove. You know, uh, Dyatlov, you know, he's one of the guys that had some bruises on his knuckles. It was his stove. And then the other guy was Rustic, you know, so maybe Rustic took some cracks on him. You know, he hits uh, Igor a few times. Igor fights back. Uh, Rustic had that skull fracture. Maybe, you know, Igor gets him with a, a good punch or you know, hits him with a rock or something and crashes his skull. And now remember, some of the other people had violent injuries to them. Well, maybe the fight just, you know, continued to go. And maybe there was something, a, a branch or something, you know, swung into somebody's ribcage. Or maybe another fight broke out later as they were panicking and they're dying and, you know, they're angry about it. I don't know. Uh, as for the alcohol he mentioned, I'm not, I'm not sure what Lamino is talking about there. Uh, I, I did not find that mentioned in any kind of toxicology report. But, but you don't need alcohol to make this theory work. Uh, so, but what about the tongue and the eyes? Well, I, I mean, 
I think some scavenger animals could have pecked their eyes out, of, uh, as others have said. Could have eaten the tongue, soft tissue of the face, the eyes. Uh, why did Russia close the investigation quickly and give it the vague conclusion that they died from natural compelling force? Well, because, you know, there's no witnesses. They didn't know exactly how everyone died. Uh, the, you know, because of the frozen bodies and stuff, it was probably, probably tricky to kind of put the crime scene together. And, uh, and because it doesn't look like any outside people did it, there wasn't strong incentive to spend a lot of time and money to find out exactly what happened. It was like, you know, kind of like, yeah, we don't know. Something, something, something got fucked up uh, with the tent and they panicked and some injuries happened and they died. Or, or, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they really were covering something up. I also have to life allow for that possibility. You know, maybe there were orders from up on high to kind of shut it down. I mean, there is a lot of agreement among researchers that whatever happened, there was a government cover-up of some kind. And these are people who have spent much more time than a week, like I have, uh, on the Dyatlov Pass. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, if you, if you want to know more, uh, the book Mountain of the Dead, The Dyatlov Pass Incident by Keith McLaughsky, uh, he, he lays out various possibilities in tons of detail. Way too much detail for me to, uh, to put it here. And, uh, and again, after doing all his research, far more than I could do in a week, even if I worked, you know, 24 hours a day, he also came to the conclusion that it was a military accident, you know, that, that it was a cover-up, and that's why the government shut it down. He actually thinks specifically it was a microbiological warfare accident, possibly and probably anthrax. Uh, apparently, the evidence was uncovered after the fall of the Soviet Union that there was a massive biological warfare project going on, and mistakes were made. And there had been some accidents concerning the development of an aerosol anthrax weapon intended for warheads attached to missiles that would detonate over American or some other enemy cities and kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And during the testing of this weapon on at least one occasion, some of this anthrax was accidentally released into the countryside near uh, Svedlovsk and people died and there was a huge cover up. And, you know, Keith thinks that, you know, the Dyatlov Pass situation could have been another one of those mistakes. Uh, but again, that doesn't explain the violent trauma injuries. I mean, ah, the more you look at this stuff, the more confusing it is. So maybe it was a military cover-up. Maybe it was a fire followed by some fighting. Maybe UFOs. Fuck it. You know, maybe it was the last great rampage of the Russian Yeti. Uh, you know, and, and again, it, and it could have been a combination of a few of these things. It could have been the fire. They, you know, they forced them out. They could have got out. And then they could have been the victim of some, you know, military mishap. Or a military mishap could have, you know, pushed him out of the tent. And then once they got out of the tent, maybe some wild animal attacked him. Maybe the Monzi did attack him. It's, we'll never know. We'll never know for sure. The only thing that we will know for sure is that uh, we're going to look back once more with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, in the evening of February 1st, 1959, something went terribly, terribly wrong for nine hikers in a remote frozen region of the Ural Mountains. Hypothermia, head injuries, and internal bleeding left nine students dead, and a ton of questions we're still looking for answers to. Number two, the final report on the Dyatlov incident by the government officials in Russia concluded that the incident was not a man-made disaster. That could be interpreted in so many ways, especially coupled with the autopsy conclusion that the hikers died as a result of an unknown compelling force. Number three, the hikers died on a mountain. The local indigenous people of the area, the Monzi, had named the Mountain of the Dead. Maybe, if you're planning a hike, don't plan one uh, heading towards the Mountain of the Dead. Number four. To me, the most disturbing piece of the puzzle is the fact that the hikers cut their way out of the tent, their only shelter, in the middle of the night in the dead of winter. 
However they die, there's a good chance it involved an element of extreme panic and terror. Number five, new info, the lair of the golden woman. The golden woman, or Zolotaya Baba, is a legendary idol, an alleged item of worship of the indigenous people of northwestern Siberia. It served as an oracle and legend for Manzi priests and appears on a 1569 AD map of the region. Uh, the lair of this idol was rumored to be near where the party died, and mythology holds that ancient ancestors of the Manzi guard the lair uh, and guard the idol with lethal force. And some think these, uh, these guardians had the power to basically attack with some kind of form of directed energy, like that investigator described, which could explain the strange internal wounds of some of the group's members. Uh, so that's just that. This is just something that's out there. Not something that I uh, necessarily believe, but it's something that's out there. So maybe it was the golden woman, and maybe the golden woman is Lucifina herself. Lucifina, before she fucked with the suck, was fucking with those poor Russian hikers. Damn you, Lucifina, be gone. And that's it for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. So that was the Dyatlov Pass incident. That was a fun one for me to research. I uh, hope it was a fun one for you to hear. Special thanks to Time Suckers Cree Lucas, Dane Enoch, Charles Ferguson, Andy Summerlin, Phil Caldwell, at OG Bulgogi on Instagram, and anyone else I missed for suggesting today's topic. I love an interesting mystery. Thanks to Sydney Shives for managing the Time Suck emails and social media. As always, dependable as shit, that one. Big thanks to Jesse Dobner for editing this episode. So thorough, so fast. Hit him up at jessedobner at outlook.com. J-E-S-S-E-D-O-B-N-E-R at Outlook.com for any editing work you need. He is fantastic. And now let's talk about Safe Passage. My wife, Lindsay, works with Safe Passage in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And what Safe Passage does is it takes victims of domestic violence and it beats them further. It's fucked up. That's what my wife is into and I'm trying to support her and not judge, you know? So, well, I don't know. No, of course not. That would be the worst. That would be the absolute worst. The people of Safe Passage work tirelessly to help families in difficult situations, such as ones involving domestic violence, and helps them get to a safe place. For those of you who, uh, who have ever been in an abusive relationship, you know how crucial this kind of work is. As part of their efforts to help these families, Lindsay is working on the giving tree for Christmas this year. She's collecting donations of wrapping paper, tissue paper, greeting cards, present tags, bows, ribbons, scissors, tape, anything else you can think of for gift wrapping. You can drop off donations between now and December 9th at the Windermere Realty Office in Post Falls, Idaho. Every little bit counts. So again, physical donations can be brought to the office, mailed to 1616 East Celtus Way, Post Falls, Idaho, 83814. Or you can email Lindsay at L-Y-N-Z-E at W-I-N-D-E-R-M-E-R-E.com. Lindsay at Windermere.com. Uh, okay, morbidly excited for next Friday, Suck Already, Unit 731. Most of us have heard about the horrible experiments on humans uh, that the Nazis did under do- uh, Dr. Joseph Mengel. Uh, but the Nazis weren't alone in conducting cruel experiments on humans. One of the lesser-known atrocities of the 20th century was committed by the Imperial Japanese Army's Unit 731. Some of the details of this unit's activities are still uncovered. They destroyed a lot of evidence. For 40 years, the horrific activities of Unit 731 remained one of the most closely guarded secrets of World War II. It was not until 1984 that Japan acknowledged what it had long denied, vile experiments on humans conducted by the unit in preparation for germ warfare. Uh, Deliberately infected with the plague, anthrax, cholera, other pathogens were an estimated 3,000 enemy soldiers and civilians who were being used as guinea pigs. 
Some of the more horrific experiments included vivisection without anesthesia and pressure chambers to see how much a human could take before their eyes literally popped out of their heads. Yeah, not going to be for the faint of heart, uh, the weak of stomach. And it's coming right at your ass for the day after Thanksgiving, which I think is so fucked up. Uh, Friday at noon, Pacific Daylight Time. But you know what? That's what Nimrod demands. The, the will of the will of the cult, the curious demands it. They demands a dark Black Friday. It's going to be a real Black Friday uh, on the suck. Uh, all right, so let's check in with the pulse of the cult, the curious now with some time sucker updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. All right, first off, some chief crazy horse updates from last week. The first one comes in from Time Sucker and future space lizard Travis Lang. Travis wrote in saying, "Dear Dan, the sucking man." I'm an almost 23-year-old uh, Nisanan Maidu man out of Auburn, California. I work for a nonprofit organization helping the local Native community with drug and alcohol addiction and mental health challenges, as well as teaching cultural practices. So it's cool to hear a Native topic on Time Suck. I've been a fan of your comedy and been listening to Time Suck since the beginning episodes, and I appreciate the mix of raunchy, dark humor and compassion that you bring to the topics that are covered. I love the crazy horse topic, and I hope to see more Native topics in the future. Not a lot of people think about the fact that Native people are still alive and well, and a lot of us still carry as much of the old ways as we can. I don't want to write uh, too much and be annoying, but I feel like there is much discussion on Native peoples left to cover, and not only the struggles of our past and present, but the resilience and humor of our communities. Anyways, I hope you come to Northern Cali in your travels because I would love to see you live from a future space lizard and current sucked crazed redskin. Love it, Travis. Love that you still carry on your ancient and sacred traditions. It's a beautiful thing, man. Cherish that sense of community that runs centuries deep. And I will see you in Northern Cali. I'll be there again next year. Coming back to San Francisco. Punchline. Okay. Next one is another crazy horse update uh, update from sucker extraordinaire Dan Sparks. Dan writes, Hey, Dan. I've been a big fan of your comedy for years now and recently became a listener of Time Suck, and it is quite frankly one of the best decisions I've made. <laughs> Very low bar, but still. I happened to listen to the Chief Crazy Horse Suck right after my sports law class where we talked about the use of American Indian mascots in sports and thought you might be interested by what I learned. You mentioned the Black Horse court case and how they found in favor of the Redskins, uh, as far as the Washington Redskins. Uh, in our class, we, we'd covered a 2015 appeal of that Black Horse case, the court, and the court ruled in favor of the American Indians. They said that the use of the term Redskins may have disparaged American Indians, so the Redskins couldn't trademark the name and logo. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court recently said it is unconstitutional to not trademark something just because it may be disparaging. So basically now the Redskins, Cleveland Indians, Atlanta Braves can all use the offensive mascots and imagery of their choosing. It is crazy to me that these mascot and team names can be used even though some of them are basically caricatures of American Indians. Just thought you might be interested in this. Keep up the awesome podcast comedy and keep on sucking. Yeah, it is crazy, Dan. It is. I, I have firsthand experience with this kind of crazy. I graduated, you know, back in Riggins, Idaho from Sam River High School, and our mascot is the Sam River Savage. Or, you know, the Savages. Our mascot, at least when I went there, I haven't, I haven't checked uh, what the visual is nowadays. But when I was there, I graduated way back in 95, and our mascot was a wild-eyed American Indian on horseback, tomahawk in hand, uh, looking like he was about to scalp. And if you don't think that's offensive, picture a wild-eyed African tribesman with a bone through his nose and a spear in his hand. Now, does it seem a little offensive? Picture a mascot called the Kamikaze, and it's a super slanty-eyed Japanese fighter pilot getting ready to crash. Think that might be a little offensive? Yes! It's super offensive to have the fucking savage getting ready to do some tomahawk chopping. It's fucked up! 
Ah, we're becoming more empathetic to unintentionally disparaging every other culture. Uh, but it's like, for some reason, you know, American Indians don't count. I guess, I don't know. It's like, is there not enough of them to be taken seriously or something? It's just, it's just a bummer. It's just a bummer. It really, really is. You know, because those other, you know, the kamikaze, the tribesmen, those wouldn't be allowed for, uh, people would lose their goddamn minds if one of those was on a, a professional sports franchise. But somehow it's okay when it's American Indians. I don't know. Uh, another tr- uh, cheap crazy horse uh, update from sucker Whitney Gaines. Whitney wrote an email to Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com titled Not Fun Facts. And this is what was inside. Dear Honorable Bojangles servant Stan Sucker Third. After listening to the Chief Crazy Horse episode, I wanted to share some fucked up little known about, about American history as it relates to American Indians. Number one, the United States has signed over 400 treaties with American Indian nations and has broken every single one of them. Good going, assholes. Number two, the United States didn't ratify the Genocide Convention for 40 years after it was adopted in 1948 for the main reason that the government didn't want to be held accountable and sued for its genocide of American Indians. So that's fun. They only ratified it because they included reservations where no group can bring a suit in the international community against the U.S. without consent of the U.S. government. So never. And and he, and he did point out the irony of using the term reservations. Sometimes our history is disgusting. Thanks for the great episode and keep on sucking. Whitney Gaines. Wow. Thanks, Whitney. It is funny how the U.S. will rail against foreign nations for cultural genocide abroad, you know, as it should, but then ignore its own sins. You know, it's like I've said before with my stand-up. I, I, I do think we're the best nation in the world, uh, the United States, but but that doesn't necessarily mean we're a great nation. We can be so much better, you know. Uh, okay, another one. This one from uh, Sucker Skyler Stewart's Dear Prophet of Nimrod. I've been a fan of your comedy for years and a loyal listener of Time Sucks since you had a show in Tacoma, Washington last year. I'm writing this to let you know how refreshing it is that a white man who grew up in rural Idaho can have progressive ideas on the social issues that are so relevant in the world today. I just finished listening to the Crazy Horse episode, and it was really cool to hear how you took the time to make sure you were using the proper term for American Indians as not to offend anyone. I always thought Native American too, so I learned something new. This coming just hours after I was after I was playing Xbox, where racial and homophobic slurs are thrown around left and right, and I was losing faith in humanity. Uh, it shows how you dedicate countless hours to to get every episode just right, and this is why I can't wait to become a space lizard. Keep sucking me great on my commute, your loyal sucky Skyler. Well, thanks, God. I mean, I, I try to do these episodes. It's funny, man. Everyone I do, as I'm doing it, though, I think like, God dang it, I wish I would have done that better. I wish I would have done this better. Uh, but I but I do I do put a lot of effort. I will say that. Um, the, these episodes may not always come out the way I, I want them. You know, I struggle over everything I say. But uh, the, if they do fail to be entertaining, it is not from lack of effort. And by the way, I'm not trying to be a... Uh, a social justice warrior or curry favor from anyone with these things too. Not trying to, you know, jerk anybody off for, for, for points for being, you know, uh, progressive or whatever. I do like, you know, that you said that, uh, I'm just trying to not be a dick is, is what it's come to as I've gotten older. I'm just trying not to be a dick in a world full of so much dick, just so many assholes. I'm just, I'm just trying not to be one of them. That's all. Try not to march alongside them in the, in the, in the herd of the human dick parade. Glad so many of you guys are doing the same. It feels good to know, you know, I'm a long ways from being alone. You guys are the fucking best, man. I feel like that's one thing I've noticed about time suckers in general. We're all just give, we're all just trying, you know, we're just trying to be better. And that's, that's all you can ask. That's all you can do in life. I think that's the best thing to do. Just, you know, just try to be better, you know, make it fun. Don't, don't look at like a bummer. It's like, oh, fuck, it was not good enough. No, man, it's never good enough. It's never good enough. 
Try and improve. Don't, don't kill yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Don't beat yourself down. You know? But yeah, make it fun. Make it fun to learn some new stuff. Make it fun to evolve. Make it fun to be to become a better human being as you, as you age and instead of just some old grumpy fuck. Uh, I'll probably have the grumpy part. I don't know, uh, but uh, but hopefully I won't be won't be a dickhead. Anyway, last last update, really quick. When this just came in, uh, right before I recorded from Hannah Weatherwax, Hannah just let me know that Charles Manson, topic of Time Suck episode eighteen, just died. Uh, my wife also let me know that moments before Hannah's email came through. Yeah, man, the cult leader, the brains, if you can call them that, behind the Manson family murders, died yesterday, November nineteenth, at the age of eighty three of natural causes. He had been in custody for over 45 years, and he'd spent most of his life uh, before his final incarceration stretch also incarcerated. And you know what? Whatever freedom that dude was given, more than he deserved. Dude was a monster, and, uh, and I'm glad he's dead. Yeah, straight up. Uh, dude manipulated people right up until the very end. He, he was never repentant for the horrific shit he did, so fuck him. Uh, you know, he kill, killed those poor, innocent people because of, because of what? Because he wanted a record deal. That's the sad, pathetic underlying truth because he wanted a record deal that he couldn't get through Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. Nobody wanted his shitty music, and so he just turned on the world and had people who were better than him killed. He was a misogynistic fucking lunatic. So good night, Charlie. Rest in stress. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. And that's all for today's show. Have a wonderful week. Uh, please buy those Detroit tickets soon if you're going to buy them. Stop by. See my wife at Windermere if you're in the Coeur d'Alene or Post Falls area. You know, drop off that stuff for safe passage. Don't go on a cold, rugged winter hike to a place called the Mountain of the Dead or to a place called Sodomized by Demons Valley or to a place called Hold You Down and Rub Sandpaper on Your Private's Creek and keep on sucking. <laughs> This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck.